Now, if you feel like you can never get on top of your back of house ops, you'll want to hear about our sponsor for this season, Loaded. Loaded's hospitality management software has changed the game for hospitality performance in New Zealand, and they've just arrived in Australia to help you do the same. Their everything-in-one-place platform helps you master your reporting inventory, simplify your recipe and menu management, reduce your cogs, and become an epic central hub that immediately puts you in control. I've seen Loaded's impact firsthand, and if you're running a bar, pub, restaurant or cafe, you need to reach out to their team. Check them out at loadedhub.com. Welcome to another Principle of Hospitality podcast. I'm your host, Sean DeVries. Thanks so much for tuning in. Principle of Hospitality has been developed to tell the stories of professionals within the dynamic world of hospitality. We're straight-talking, ethically-minded, and a reliable online source of information and inspiration for people in the hospitality industry. Now, with today's show, this week... We're at the heart of an exceptional event titled Sharing Event, Meet the Catchers and Growers of the Sea and have a unique opportunity to sit down with a remarkable woman behind it all, Uma Nguyen. Uma is an expert in the world of sustainability seafood, culinary arts and has made this event into a spectacular seafood showcase connecting producers, chefs, apprentices and attendees through the love of the ocean's bounty. Welcome Uma, how are you? Good, thank you. It is unbelievable to have you on this podcast today as we sit in amazing TAFE in, in the outskirts of, well, inner city Brisbane, I would say. And we want to talk about so much today, obviously this event, but first of all, I want to talk about yourself. How did you start out in the hospitality industry? How did you get to a point where you have so much love and care for sustainability and seafood? I actually started off as a qualified chef or an apprentice, then a chef, but then my daughter turned nine, who's 24 now with my grandson. <laughs> but when she turned nine, I was working in a kitchen and I realised I missed everything. Her first words, her crawling, like just such important aspects of her life. And so being as a single mother, I made a choice to change. So I changed over into a seafood wholesaling job where I could still communicate with chefs and then had to learn seafood in a different way so that I could still be linked to the hospitality industry because I couldn't no longer physically do it. What made you love being a chef at the start? Eating. <laughs> Just because of my mum. Right. My mum, my I guess eating was the same in every language, like mass. It's the same in every language. We all have to eat to survive, so we might as well enjoy what we eat. And then as I progressed into seafood and learning more about it, I then actually cared more about how the animal is caught, how it's grown, what it does for the environment, the families who actually catch it or grow it, and then all the steps in between. And then the most amazing thing is then I get to eat it. And then the chef who creates then tells me their story on how they created it. So there's all these stories involved for me. So it's about storytelling more than anything. Yeah, and it allows creativity. And you get to understand other people's culture. We ate differently compared to how I was classically trained. Mm. So I ate whatever my mum put on the plate. <laughs> we all had our, we always had pan fried whole fish or everything was cooked with the bone in. And then when I studied cooking, 
no, nothing. It was just like the Supremes, the fillets, the portionings. There was no heads, there was no <laughs> tails, there was no bones. <laughs> so it was a very different view on things. So then as an adult, I never met an asparagus until I was 18. A white asparagus where we had to cook it up in our first year apprenticeship. Mm. And then I went home and asked my mum, why don't I know what an asparagus is? And she goes, we don't have them in, a, in Vietnam. Or, so she never knew how to. Yeah, so then she got to learn what I learned when I had new product. So tell me back a bit. Like, you've obviously become a chef and then you've decided to get into seafood wholesaling. Like, how did that happen? No, so that was just by chance. I oh. just needed and I just wanted a job with normal times and a sure. chef recommended me call a wholesaler so I could do daytime work and then be at home for my daughter. But I hated it. Why? They didn't like having to sit in an office. <laughs> I absolutely hated it. The people weren't friendly either. Right. In a kitchen, you always need to do something. Like when you got time to lean, you can clean or go prep. In the office, they told me to sit there and just look busy. <laughs> and so it was really difficult for me. So I taught myself to touch type. And then I was like, I hate this job. Mm. And then I was like, how do I like it? And then I was like, well, go learn about what you have to talk about and sell. And then you, the chef, hey, I don't know what a pearl perch is. How about you try it? And then you tell me. So then I'm like, these chefs get to do what you can't do anymore. Mm. So then you could then do things with them this way. Yep. So I just merged it because... I had to teach myself to love what I do or else it just doesn't work. So how long did you do that? Seafood for. Yeah. Selling seafood for after chefing nearly 10 years, like another eight years. At the same brand or did you move brands? No, I moved wholesaling jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I guess like any other job, when you first start, you don't actually know what the pathway is. Mm. And then I was doing all admin inside. I guess that was the apprenticeship of doing that and then Mm. they promoted me to like being a rep seafood rep so then that way I met a lot of chefs through that was there a point where you go you're sitting in the first maybe six months of doing this seafood wholesaling job and you're like oh bugger this I'm going to go to another part of the industry I'm going to do something else what actually kept you in seafood eating I got (laughs) uh, I didn't know all these species and I still don't so we actually have over 5,000 species of fish. I haven't eaten them all. <laughs> so, and then that's only one category. That's just in the wild sector. How many do you reckon you have eaten? Oh, I don't know, maybe 40, 50, but not that many. Yeah. And I only get to eat that because I travel as well. Yeah. So how do we get to a point today where you're doing like this amazing event connected with fantastic suppliers, apprentice chefs, just uh, like today being around this is why I want to do the podcast straight after was like uh, it feels just a culmination of all your efforts all in a couple of hours do you think that's a do you think that's a fair thing like how did it get to a point where this event came about we actually winged it (laughs) it just came for me I've been very blessed everything has just been organic growth Mm. all the legwork door knocking seeing chef one by one Producers, on the other hand, has been organic growth. And in the beginning, I just took on clients purely to survive. But now it's, well, now it's about sustainability. What do you do for the environment? How do you look after your team? 
and then sharing that sustainability story, whether it's wild or aquaculture, because there's a place for both. And sharing that with chefs, what they think was important. In the beginning when I first started this, chefs, when they said the word local, meant all of Australia. You speak to chefs now about local, it means within their state or their region. So things have definitely changed. And so people want to people when they write the menu or they want to relate they want to know where their product comes from they want to come up with the farm they want to see how it's growing mm. or they want to know how it's caught they want to make sure it's good for our environment because this next generation is coming through cares they want to know that it's going to survive and we're going to be here for the next generation so i always thought because i have a daughter i was like yep always for the next generation there's something about looking at my daughter's baby or my grandson, there's something much more important and a lot deeper because you have this un... I don't know how to explain this love for someone I've only just met. <laughs> and it's frustrating. Not frustrating, but it's, he's only five months old and yet now I'm thinking ahead is what's our food security look like? Yeah. Even with the apprentices, it's like we won't have an industry if there are no apprentices coming through. So it all, this kind of just all links on. And I was very blessed because I used to sell seafood to Danielle when she was a chef at Bucci. Oh, wow. And then she came here and she messaged me on Instagram one day and said, it'd be great to have you come out and see all the apprentices. And so I said, okay. And she said, well, what do you want? I said, nothing. You saved me five years of trying to find them. They're all in one room. <laughs> so the more, and then the more I understood about sustainability, it wasn't just for the environment. It was if our next generation understands the hardship of our primary producers and everything in between, then that's a different level of sustainability as well. The respect they have for the product when it comes to their door and just that understanding and full cycle of it as well. And since then, I come here every couple of times a year with individual groups. I teach them about the products that we do tasting and then they go create a dish. Wow. They go create a dish with what we bought. So we taste it. We show them how to clean a muscle or, and then we get to taste. And then they will then go off and create on their own a dish for us that day. Wow. And it will just rotate. And every time I get new product, they learn on the same level as I would go out to a fully qualified industry chef. So do you find that's a way, do you find that's a way of getting to the, obviously you're using the facility here to get to those apprentice chefs as quickly as you can because then you get so much information into them early in their journey, right? Correct. But then them going and then working in restaurants all across Queensland, then they're going to go and share this knowledge as well with maybe chefs who haven't had this kind of training or haven't had this kind of exposure. So it's like a double win in a way. It's like a sharing thing. It's like almost a word of mouth. So they will, just because... So what seniors, exec chefs, they're, if they're an exec of a group, they have head chefs who are running and filtering it down, but they've got their every day. I might have a meeting with a chef unless I organise a group presentation. Only that chef, unless they use it, that's the only thing that they're going to learn and then show them. But if we can teach creativity and allow them to be creative, because I don't go in and go, this is how you'd have to do it. They have an upbringing. They have their own culture. 
and then they have their level of creativity from where they're training to now that they can then have the ability to create a dish. And then that's rewarding. Because when we were an apprentice, when they told us to just go clean 25 kilos of mussels, <laughs> that's all you did was scrub and de-beard it. No one told me where it came from. We weren't even allowed to talk in yeah. my apprenticeship. It was just, yes, chef, no chef. And then the only time you learned was when there was a mistake. So it was abusive more than educational, if that makes sense. It does. So if we give them this ability to have kind of more of a blank canvas and be open to things, how creative can they be, especially with not wasting these days? So when you go into, let's fast forward, and when you go into these kitchens and you talk to head chefs, exec chefs, what do you tell them about? What do they want to know? Does your conversation with them change depending on... Who they are. Who they are and their standing, their knowledge and all that kind of stuff. Correct. A lot of them will ask me what, you know, is the product sustainable? Yeah. Before I can answer that question, they need to tell me what they think it is first. I was going to ask what your... your Well, when I first started this, I didn't even know what that meant. I had to look into it. And I, the first thing I Googled was sustainability, but it actually came up with this image of life cycle for humans (laughs) instead. The environment, food... And then I learned more, and as I learned more about individual product and sustainability, it means for me is that we can replenish stocks and it doesn't harm our environment or in our oceans in other ways, so that we can constantly have a continuous supply of product for generations to come, is what I think. But then it's also important for me, sustainability is how my producers treat their staff, what they're doing to future-proof their own industry, for example, aquaculture, they're not putting anything back out into the sea or we're not doing any other damage that I know of. Mm. So none of my clients that I know of is doing that. So before I even take it on, I will go view it, go to the farm, make sure that everything they tell me is true. And I will also go see how they treat their team because how you treat your team is how you're going to treat me in industry. What made you start doing that? because that was important to me because I remember how I was treated and I make sure that I don't want to be treated that way. So if we can create a whole community of this, just good networks amongst good networks, when we refer each other to other our extended network, we know that we're only sharing good people with other good people, if that makes sense. It does. So I suppose you probably go through an external and internal checklist in your head when you go to these farms or even these wild fisheries and that kind of stuff to talk to talk to these owners talk to these producers but i imagine that a lot of that is on gut feel no i'll go out but when you go there it must be the the energy of the place that you go to right you can feel it yeah 100 percent. yeah you can feel it you can feel it yeah when you go to when you go to restaurants and you talk to chefs is there much debate that you get amongst wild caught versus I used to farming. when I first started seven and a half years ago they were very more in preference of wild okay but then over the years they are seeing that there is a place for aquaculture because wild is governed by mother nature so you can't go oh I only want this and then there's a cyclone or there's a flood and then it takes time to replenish mm. so it's not always going to be that way aquaculture has its own struggles as well but it has a level of consistency and continuity. 
to offer the chefs something available all year round. But we're very blessed here. We have <laughs> so much. Do you think chefs realise that? I don't know. I hope so. I hope they realise how spoiled we are. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we have so much. So many different types of prawns all around Australia. And we're very blessed with what we have. We live on a, pretty much, we live on a giant island surrounded by water. Yes. <laughs> so we're very blessed, I think. What's the difference in the conversations that you were having seven and a half years ago to what you're having now with chefs? I think it's a little bit different. Seven and a half years ago, it was a bit socially awkward and I couldn't communicate. Like, it made sense in my head what I was doing and I don't think I was very clear on communicating it. And I only know this because the chefs would say, you come out and you give us all these samples and we don't really know what to do. But you don't sell them. Right. Because it would have to go through a wholesaler because I represent all the primary producers mm. and I share their stories with chefs to create brand awareness and transparency in the product so there's guaranteed no substitution so when they actually go order it through their seafood supplier they can order it by the brand so then that guarantees no substitution but the chef then knows the story of the brand and fully backs it every time they order it interesting how many produce so it's like a backwards way of marketing indirect sales really yeah exactly i've never i've never really known anyone to do it that way before it's very unique and not be selling at the same time well i am indirect selling but, yeah. I, but I get hired to so i can do marketing for my producers or i can just do sales but we only sell to wholesalers because we have to cover freight and there's a chain of supply chain that mm. you got to go through of course yeah and how many producers are you advocating for now, if I can I ask? I have a few, I think. <laughs> I like, I think about 10. Wow. Very loyal guys and organic growth. So they're like my seafood family. <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm very loyal to them. And that without them, this event wouldn't happen. They support me in samples for the chefs, samples and tastings. And they believe in what I believe, the way I do it. And is this something you're doing all around Australia at the moment? We're doing it predominantly here, and when I do travel, I will do this as well. And I do have a Vita in Sydney, like the New South Wales mm. fish girl out under the radar, going out, breaking out products to chef, tasting it. And that's how we create a demand in Sydney for some of my products there. Wow. Is there other parts of the industry you'd want to do this for? Could you do this for beef producers or lamb producers or chicken producers or something else? Or is it just seafood? Potentially I probably could, but I think the sea is it's where the heart is at the moment. That's <laughs> yes. definitely where the heart is. I don't know why. But, <laughs> but you don't get bored. I definitely can't get bored. There's mm. always something new. Mm. Or there's a new puzzle somewhere with a product that needs some assistance. What are some of the challenges for producers at the moment? Substitution. Okay. Like they might find a cheaper product elsewhere. Okay. And then they're not getting told exactly where it comes from. Yeah, okay. We have so many types of barrow out there. There's so many farms out there, so many different regions. It's like where is it from well <laughs> i still have the same template for everyone is come see our farm try our product mm. this is where it comes from yep but because there's so many different types of 
I'm just going to use Barra because there's so many different farms out there. And then there's wild as well. And then you've got imported. So fresh, frozen, imported. Yep. Chef might just get invoiced for barramundi fillets. But where does it come from? Could it be from Western Australia? Could it be from Darwin? Could it be from North Queensland? Could it be fresh water from Victoria? Or is it fresh imported from Asia somewhere? Because labour's cheaper. But on the invoice, it only states this. So I guess... Then I go tell the chefs, like, come look at the farm. This is where it comes from. Then they can actually order it by the brand. But who does the checkpoint in the between? I can't answer that <laughs> because you need wholesalers to do the right thing. Yeah. So I can't control that. And then chefs can't ask for products if they don't know it exists either. Yeah, they don't have that knowledge, right? Correct. Yeah. They might get sent by a wholesaler, like, this is our fresh fish list. But when they meet me... This is the days the fish on Rocky Point is getting harvested. This is the day. So there's so much transparency in what I do. Wow. So this is the day we harvest. This is the day your wholesaler gets it. This is the day it lands to you. You must blow their mind when you go into these kitchens and tell them this transparency. But that's what they want. I agree, but it's just not. It's obviously not what they're getting. Well, I don't know, but... I think we're past that point because that's where the gaps are filled in because yeah. I've executed the solutions to that. Is this is We showcase when this happens. Chefs more call me up now is we want to put something on sustainable and we have that conversation. So what's your ethos? Then we can then fit in what products I can think I can help you with. Sure. The other thing is when they want me to, I'm going to write a menu, do you know if this is going to be available? So now it's a little bit different. It's not just what other products do you have. Is we're writing a menu, what? can you help us with also here today like we're obviously using different parts of fish we're not just talking about just fish fillet and all that kind of stuff like how you seen chefs use fish in different ways and using whole fish a lot more often are you seeing that coming through yeah they've gonna everyone's as you can see with the coral trout today they use the wings the heads everything and so with fish more though it's more the underutilized species that they veer away from the species that they don't really know. Like the long-nosed emperor, it's wild caught, it's sporadic, but we won't buy it because we don't know what it is. <laughs> but it doesn't affect our stock quota. So that's one part of underutilized is species that people don't know. Yep. And on the prawn toast that Tom from Honto did today, we use the razorback prawns and these little red prawns that is caught alongside our scampi that no one wants. Why doesn't anyone want them for? Because they're small. Right. But they don't affect our stock quota. Wow. But we all know what a prawn is, mm. but because it's not big, no one kind of wants it. It doesn't look good. But then we use all the shells to make a prawn oil. What? And with the prawn heads you can then dehydrate it blitz it up turn it into a dust so there's heaps of things we can do but i think the other problems i see chefs having is being short staffed skilled staff and labor and so yeah we like this product but we don't have time to peel it or process it so then we have another kind of problem how do you think we solve that problem well i used to think really hard but i feel like at this point if we had nothing left to eat should we get to that point and maybe they will consider it yep those little prawns 
It's still a local Australian product and we're not wasting anything. So how do we get to that point where we get to zero waste? Or as a nation with so many chefs in it, could we then come up with something that is a value-added product to supply a food protein for another country who doesn't have that same luxury? Interesting. Just interrupting this podcast to let you know that Fine Food Australia returns this September, the 11th to the 14th to Sydney and will occupy the entire ICC Sydney. That's four levels of fine food. Fine food has been the leading trade event for all food, from retail to hospitality, manufacturing to bakery for nearly four decades. Visiting fine food will be the recipe to fast track your business for commercial success. Just a reminder that this event is free to attend, so make sure you register at finefoodaustralia.com.au. Now back to our podcast. Do you think there's a potential for, if not chefs in kitchens doing that, but maybe economies of scale, it's actually the fishery producers who are producing those products rather than the chefs in the restaurants producing those products, so then they actually can sell those products to kitchens. Do you think that's possible from what you know? I think there's definitely, but there'll be an opportunity later. Yeah, But yeah. then who's actually going to do all the work for it? <laughs> so like, yes. there's a big gap there. Who's going to do it? Great idea. Yes. But then who's going to do it? Yeah. Who wants to sit in a cold room and peel these little prawns? Yeah. Just like the scampi caviar eggs mm. used to get thrown away. And now it's, yeah. Yeah. So there needs to be enough money in it that, to actually make it worthwhile to well, put in the human labour market. For anything. Yeah. Like, we don't go eat at a restaurant and walk in and go, I don't agree with your pricing. I'm only going to pay you this. We don't do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so yeah. producers are the same. They've got fuel, they've got labour, they've got agriculture's got feed, they've got pay for quota. There's all these. They've got their costs too. Yeah. And freight is the biggest killer for a lot of places, I think. Just our internal national transport logistics. And maybe the next step for that is communities working together to have that as a shared cost. And then it will filter all the way through. What do you think? So two-part question. What's your favourite fish to eat right now for yourself? Oh, right now. Second one. (laughs) Why don't you think Australians eat more fish? Yeah. Why, why they don't. Why they don't. Because I reckon the actual knowledge of fish against other proteins in the market like beef and like lamb and whatnot, fish is not something that's eaten nearly as much as those land animals. Do you have an, do you have an understanding of why that is? It will be a lack of information and knowledge. Yeah. Like, again, we go back to 5,000 5, species. Yes. And how many do we know? How many is actually on offer? Not that many. No. And usually it's mostly filleted and, and that kind of stuff, but they don't know nearly enough about the whole part of the fish, right? No. Yeah. So I, I won't have a specific fish, but I like the wings, the tails, and the head. Actually, the fillet is the last thing I like. Why? And that's how I was grow, grow up. That's how we always had it. Yep. The most tastiest part. Yeah, they're the best. <laughs> they're like a undersea chicken wing for me. <laughs> gets, yeah. I was like, ooh, I get excited. Because I'm like, oh, I don't care about that. I just want the head, the tails, and the wings. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then I get annoyed if I have a family member who like the same thing because then it's like we have to share. <laughs> so much nicer when you're like, oh. like, why can't you just like the drumstick? And then I'll eat the wings. But we all like the wings. It's, it gets complex. Yeah, yeah. Who's going to get him first? Yeah, but no, they're – like I don't have a specific favourite because I only like those sections. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you can do anything. You can have a dipping sauce it, and it's just the best snacks or with rice and fresh cucumber. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Why don't we eat – why doesn't Australian eat more seafood or yeah. more fish specifically? Well, they only offered so many at the supermarkets, like – Salmon, barra, a type of snapper. I, I don't know if I see anything else out there. Maybe some tuna because they relate it to Japanese sashimi and a bit of kingfish and cobia as sashimi, but I don't see any other species out there. A, it's too hard or people don't know what it is. And so that's why it's same with chefs. If you don't know a product, unless they're adventurous, they won't really use it. Mm. So if we can train these guys to know about it, then it's a lot easier because you can't, it's harder to unlearn things than to learn things. So if you started only knowing X amount and then you get to a stage where, you know, you're in this industry and this, if you're qualified and you're expected to know, but if you're not comfortable or confident or know what it is, how many of the qualified chefs are actually going to give it a go? So how do we change that? Because I'm only one person. And if and also, the other thing is, if chefs aren't offered these species, they will never know that it exists. So then there's that's a two-part answer, I guess, really, is A, maybe they don't know that it exists. Maybe that's why we don't have a lot of product out there mm. or choices because they're limited. Or two, it's fear. Or they just won't know how to use it or cook it. Because how would they find out all those things if you're not coming into their kitchens or they don't come to an event like this? Like, what actually know. what actually is there for them from the fish industry to actually allow them to be educated once they're actually qualified chefs? They're seafood wholesalers. Yeah. Is if some you'd have to have a really good relationship with your your rep or a wholesaler because they'll be the ones to communicate. Yeah. Because it can't be me. It can only be me on certain things. Sure. But I can't do it every day. This yep. is what I can't. Yeah. So they'd have to have that relationship and be, have a relationship and then make that into a partnership for that to be sustainable for both parties. Sure. Yeah. And I imagine it must be something that that chef has to have a real true want is to represent fish in the right way. Because I think unless you're going to a... This is what I'm seeing in Melbourne and in the southeastern states. Unless you're going to a place that specialises in fish, like they'll just have fish as part of their menu, which is maybe not on the ethos of what we're of what we're talking about today. Or they probably want it to be, but they just don't have the knowledge. A bit like you were talking about barramundi, like where the hell is it from? Like it's it's if unless you really specialise in that, like you maybe not unfortunately get those treatment from the wholesalers because you're not getting the volume, which is totally. Yes, Fair enough. It's constant. Right? Correct. Yeah. So like, how do we actually get better? Communication. Yeah. And we all have to want to get better. Everyone has to do a little bit. Yeah. Because, you know, you'll speak to wholesalers and be like, oh, the chefs are too fussy. It's too hard. Yeah. And you speak to chefs and some of my wholesalers, I'm not big enough, so they're not going to find it for me. And It's a chicken and egg. 
It's always a chicken and egg. <laughs> it's always a chicken and egg and it gets confusing. But then maybe we just got to reword it differently. Yep. So maybe we're not asking the right questions. Interesting point. It's just a different way to look at the situation. And sometimes the problem is the opportunity. In what way? In every way. Like all my clients, some of my producers are like, all this underutilized is a problem. And I'm like, okay, so what can we do? Just maybe get it out there, get them to try it. And then instead of putting it in the bin, we're now moving it. Yeah. So adding value that way. But maybe chefs will ask more questions now because they know or they can see that there's other stuff out there. Obviously notice and we've, I've followed you for a long time. I realised the other week. It was 2017. Yes. That's a long time. Like, mm. like your content. And <laughs> I was socially awkward. I just wrote, thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. Come a long way. <laughs> Are you using unrepresented fish more in Instagram as a tool to get more knowledge into chefs who are following you on Instagram? It'll be a combination. Okay. It will be, hey, this is what it looks like. Yeah. And then look what someone else has done with it. Because mm. there is no right and wrong in what I'm teaching either. It's, this is where it's caught. This is what you can do with it. This is what it looks like. But I'm not going to tell you how to cook it. Yep. Because with most things, if I have never tried it, I'd try it raw if we can. Okay. And then I'd steam it, pan fry it, and just as simple as possible okay. just to taste it. And then I can then build on that flavour. It's like... So every product would be like a blank canvas. Like, the same way as I eat the scampi caviar. Eat it cold, let it come to temperature, and then you can go, well, what else can I eat with it? And then you build the layers that way. Interesting. So cold first because that is the... Always cold. Because? That's what I learned with the deep water product is I always eat it super cold, even like the prawns raw. Because then we eat it cold, then you get a different taste profile and then when you let it come to room temperature it changes so then that will give you an indication then it's okay well what else can we do to it because with the deep water products once you eat it let it come to temperature the flavors will get stronger and the texture will then become creamier and then less sweet super interesting but my client taught me how to do it Right. That's how he did it. And then so with fish, try to eat it raw, have it cold, let it come to temperature, steam it, pan fry it, and then add the layers and then go, okay, well, what did I like? And then you can build on it. So when you are Instagramming, you are doing, talking about the different, different fish varieties, what kind of response are you getting from chefs when you do that kind of content? They'll direct message me if they want to try it. Especially if they get excited. Yeah. But the normal people are excited too, like the normal consumers or just foodies or just anyone who's looking. I didn't know you could do that. Or I ask questions. It's, hey guys, I went, I just come back from Barcelona and there's these little red prawns. It's everywhere. They have it like Carpaccio. They have it sold at their little IGA shops or their little, here, can't even give it away. (laughs) I'm just like, I'm like, I ask questions. like, guys, why can't we do this here? Mm. Or look, they used the prawns and had it raw, tossed in a pasta. They oven, like they pan fried the shells to get the flavours out and then they made it into a bisque and poured it back into a pasta. Like, why can't we do this here? Yeah. But see, some people will like it 
But I see that that post got over 6,000 views, 80-something saved it. But no one, because everyone's more worried about the judgment mm. from other people. Yep. But for me, it's a visual. And I don't want to get judged by what I put up either. Sure. Hey, guys, this is where it comes from, but I have no favourites. Yes. And even when I go eat out, it's to support our industries. I went to eat here, look what they created. But I don't critique them. I am just share with them, like, this is where I've eaten, look what they're doing. Sure. How do you feel about... How do you feel about apprentices at the moment and apprenticeships at the moment? How do you think it's evolved and changed from when you started as an apprentice? Oh, it's very different. In what way? I don't know how to say this diplomatically. No, you can be undiplomatic. That's fine. There are some good ones. I'm not saying them all that they're all not, that they do want to, but it's definitely not the same as back then. I think media has a lot of things to do with it. Like, that, I feel the young ones... Like, for me, I woke up and I always wanted to be a chef. Yeah. I think now it's like they watch TV and they think that it just be famous just like that because you woke up one day and decided to cook. Yeah. But you don't want to give up your weekends. Yeah. You don't, don't want to work, work nights. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to cook for people, then no offence. You're never, ever going to be having time off when there's a meal being served. You're never going to have Mother's Day, Christmas Day. You're never going to have those special event days off because mm. that's when other people go out to eat and celebrate. Yep. And I don't know if there's enough resilience left in it. Like there are some good ones, but their outlook has definitely, I feel, is different, very different. Like they're not as hungry. They don't even do a full four years anymore, I don't think. It's three, isn't it? Yeah. We can't be signed off in three. I don't know. I remember. <laughs> Mine didn't even want to pay me more when I was like nearly qualified, so they just extend it. So you mm. just had to do it. And then for me, I guess, when I finally qualified, I thought I'd, I made it. But then you're at the bottom of the ladder. Yeah. Like legit all over again. You're on, you, you're like the apprentice of all the qualified people. Yes. Once you are a commie <laughs> yes. and yeah. no one told you yeah. because you're there again. And so the perseverance is very different, I feel, and they look at things very differently. I just don't know. I get worried, but it's almost like I'm grateful for the ones who are in it now mm. and I'm thanking them for being an apprentice because who's going to cook for me in 10 years? Who's gonna, you know what I mean? It's very different. I don't know. There's a lot of factors involved, though. Do you think apprenticeships still work? Do you think we should be changing the way that we're training people in the industry? Because brigades are very, very important to how we run kitchens. They have been for a long time. But maybe it's a re it's a rethink about how we run kitchens. We now. have to rethink it because I go to a lot of restaurants and there was one year more than 50 of them didn't even have, 50% of them didn't even have apprentices. Yeah. And it was concerning. Yeah. That's why I come here to make sure that they're still here. And that's why I'm so grateful for them. Because how do we future proof? Where is our future now? Because all the generations of chefs now, if they don't have a team to back them, what does it look like? Yeah. Because we can't live on forever either. And we physically can't upkeep the work, the physical work of a chef. No, it's relentless. 
It's very, <laughs> yes. It's physically draining, mentally draining. You have to be switched on all the time. So how do we build that? Do you think things like automation and robotics and stuff like it that is going to is going to filter? Do you think that's going to filter through just by that way of the fact that we can't get a That will definitely filter through on a production level. Yeah, but on a creative le- creative level, I'm unsure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting part because you're obviously seeing it, but especially I, in the US right now, right, where it's becoming pretty normalised through fast food brands and that kind of thing. But I'm curious how that's going to work in restaurants and that kind of stuff further on. It definitely will happen. We've got knifeless kitchens now. What do you mean we've not got knifeless kitchens now? We've got knifeless kitchens, like kitchens where there's no knives. Everything is bought in, already cut, processed. So it guarantees no injuries, no workers' comp. Where's this? I've not seen this. In <laughs> certain places, definitely. In Australia? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, think about it. Everything's processed, ready to go. No one's yeah, getting injured. You're just mixing recipes, solid. Makes a lot of sense. My final question to you is, what makes you get up and want to continue to do this? And then the second part of that question, how big do you want to grow events like today? The bigger, the better. Okay. Well, sharing. Because not only a lot of these guys in industry don't see each other because they're just going into their own little bowl every day, kitchens. It's good for them to see with other chefs Mm. within their community. And then it's even better that they meet the futures serving them food today. Yeah, absolutely. And then they also got to connect with primary producers today. Mm. How can you do that all in one day? It's not possible. Yep. So the bigger, the better, because the more people that can work together... When they all, if I have a problem and I put a question up on Instagram, oh, if I have one question, hey guys, what can we do with this? And I ask a hundred people, I'm going to have a hundred answers. So when I have a big problem, I'll ask the question Mm. to everyone Mm. within the network, the chefs, the apprentices, social media, because that's how you're going to have answers is that we actually work together. Mm. Even though no one knows that we're working together, their answers actually help me come up with an answer. Interesting. Do you want to grow these to other states? Yes. I do them, but on a different scale. In So in what way? So, every, so when I go to WA, I will... Any wholesalers that want to support me, they invite their chefs because I'm not a local. Like here, I can organise and get everything delivered because I have relationships and contacts and network. But when I go to another state, I would need wholesalers to invite their chefs for me. Sure and help me find a venue and help me execute because without the network and relations here, I would not be able to net, would not be able to execute this without other help. Yeah. So we do that in, well, I, we, in Perth, let's work with the ones who work with me and they help me pick a venue and then I fly my producers or my producers fly over and we will they'll get their direct one-on-one with the producers and then we get them to do tasting and then we'll have open questions. Yeah. Permission to ask a dumb question. Yes. Are there any many producers who are throughout Australia or do they mainly stay local to where they particularly are and just concentrate on that area? Well, it depends on how big the producers are. Sure. If they're starting, some people are just starting, some people are actually well and truly into it. Yeah. And they have the network to and 
the logistics and everything to go all around Australia. Okay. My final question to you, Uma, is what are you excited about for the rest of this year? What are you hoping to achieve now you've done this incredible event that we feel so privileged to be part of today? I hope people don't waste food and I hope people, like, share it with each other, like what they've learnt today, like what they learned with some of the producers today and some of the creation that they actually got to try today and mm. then go out and be adventurous and give it a go. Amazing. Thank you for inviting us down here. Okay. Up here, I should say. We're up in Brisbane. It was just fantastic. It was humbling. I knew it was going to be... I knew it was going to be great, but it was extra special great. Thank you for inviting us. Oh, thanks for sharing the day with us. That's okay. Final thing is, what is the best way that people can find you and follow you? I just on Instagram. Awesome. With the fish girl, right? Yes. That's the first time I actually said that in this whole podcast. How awful. <laughs> so that's, all, <laughs> that's going to be linked up in the show notes of this podcast. Uma, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning to this episode of Principle of Hospitality. I hope you really enjoyed it and learnt a lot, especially if we don't talk to many people about fish. And now I feel super embarrassed. You're going to hear from a lot of people in the seafood industry up towards the end of the year, especially up this area of the world. Please comment and share this podcast with your friends in the industry. That is why we can continue to do it if you keep sharing along with those that you know. Until next time, stay well, everyone. Now, if you feel like you can never get on top of your back of house ops, you'll want to hear about our sponsor for this season, Loaded. Loaded's hospitality management software has changed the game for hospitality performance in New Zealand, and they've just arrived in Australia to help you do the same. Their everything-in-one-place platform helps you master your reporting inventory, simplify your recipe and menu management, reduce your cogs, and become an epic central hub that immediately puts you in control. I've seen Loaded's impact firsthand, and if you're running a bar, pub, restaurant or cafe, you need to reach out to their team. Check them out at loadedhub.com.